In Hebrews 11, the author of the book is concluding what is known as the Hall of Faith, that listing of believers' great accomplishments done by a living faith. And the author of Hebrews says this, they were tortured. Still others had trials of mocking, scourgings, chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two, slain with the sword. They were afflicted and tormented, men of whom the world was not worthy. As the Apostle Peter writes the words of our text, and I hope you'll be looking at our text because they're important things to see even by the sequence and the placement of our text that you'll need to look at in 1 Peter 3. As the Apostle Peter writes the words of our text, Christians were suffering horrifically under the Roman Emperor Nero. Early historians, Tacitus and Suetonius, document the fierce persecution of Christians under the reign of the Roman Emperor Nero, beginning around the year 54 AD. And this persecution for Christians came for a very few clearly definable reasons. First of all, it came because Christians would not worship the Roman gods or engage in emperor worship. The Roman Empire was a a polytheistic society in the worship of traditional Roman gods and especially the worship of the emperor or the Caesar was seen as essential to maintaining the stability of the state. And so Christians were hated because they would not bow the knee to other gods. The second reason why the persecution of Christians came is because Christians were challenging traditional Roman ideas of society. They did something so scandalous as to promote the idea of brotherhood among all believers regardless of social status or background. And the third reason why Nero himself and the Roman state were persecuting Christians so fiercely is because Nero was a homosexual who engaged in two public homosexual marriages and he was infuriated at the insistence of Christians on biblical sexual ethics. And so Nero, the Roman emperor, ordered systematic persecution of Christians. He attempted to force Christians to deny Christ. And if they would not, he had three specific favorite tactics. The first was he would loose savage animals on captive Christians who would tear them limb from limb, sometimes in the Colosseum. The second manner of systematic persecution of Christians was they would either be executed by crucifixion or beheading. And this happened to the two most prominent apostles. The apostle Peter was crucified upside down. And the apostle Paul was beheaded. They both knew the wrath of Nero. And the third method that Nero would use against Christians is they were most frequently burned as human torches for Nero's garden parties in the evenings. What is the believer to do when persecution and opposition and harm are breaking out on every side, when he's just standing for righteousness or biblical ethics? Does the scripture address the issue of suffering for righteousness' sake? And I want you to pay very careful attention at the words that Pastor King just read a moment ago in verse 13 through 18. 
because our text does, in fact, address suffering for righteousness, you will notice, if you are the least bit adept at biblical interpretation, that the repeated concept, look at it there in verse 14, 17, and 18, you see the word suffering. Now, immediately, there are many of you who think, I I don't want to hear this. I don't like to think about suffering. I don't even like to go to the dentist, Carl. And so the idea of suffering and suffering for Christ's sake. And so let me tell you that this is the word of God to you, to us today. I'm going to document how this is happening in many places all over the world, and it's coming rapidly for believers in America. We're going to need the help of the Holy Spirit to hear and understand this word right, and so let's ask for that now. Our Father, we long to be effective, clear witnesses for Christ as you've commanded us. And so by this word, instruct us, remind us, help us to put off cowardice and fear and confusion, and put on boldness and clarity. Give us concentration now over your word. Give us a hunger to know your word and a passion to be doers of your word, not hearers only. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to look carefully and I want you to notice the placement because I'm going to tell you what Peter does and maybe, just maybe, correct some faulty ideas of ours about how we are to be defending the faith. And so look carefully at the placement. Remember, we believe in verbal plenary inspiration, meaning that the very text of Scripture, we believe the words are inspired, plenary, all the words of Scripture inspired, the the structure and the way that the text is laid out, we believe are inspired. So look at verse 14 and verse 17. Now you're saying, Carl, what are you skipping by verse 15 and 16? Oh, we'll come to that in just a moment. But look at verse 14 and verse 17 where Peter speaks of the believer's sufferings at the hands of wicked men. Innocent, righteous believers have suffered unjustly at the hands of the wicked for 6,000 years. It was nothing new in Nero's day 2,000 years ago, and it's not new in our day. Think of some of the suffering we've known of believers at the hands of the wicked. Innocent Abel, slain by wicked Cain. Righteous Elijah, persecuted without a cause by civil rulers Ahab and Jezebel. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, suffering at the hands of Babylonian idolaters who tried to kill them. The Lord just wouldn't let them be killed. Or righteous and innocent John the Baptist, who was beheaded by wicked men. Godly Stephen, martyred by wicked men. And so you hear that brief litany, all of them righteous men, all of them persecuted by wicked rulers. When Paul and Barnabas were discipling new Christians, they made no attempt to hide the opposition believers would face in a hostile world. Luke writes of their words in Acts 14 when they taught new believers, new Gentile believers, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Or when Paul writes the church in Thessalonica, he says in 1 Thessalonians 3, No one should be shaken by these afflictions, for you yourselves know we were ordained for this. Peter speaks to this clearly and frequently. If you look back just a page to 1 Peter 1, Peter has already told his Gentile readers it's not unusual for believers to suffer and be afflicted. He speaks of this various trials. 
And then in the next chapter, just look across the page in 1 Peter 4, in the next chapter, we will hear Peter tell us in 1 Peter 4.12, Believer, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. And so what you hear is if you hear John or Peter or Paul or the Old Testament prophets, they would all say, yeah, this is part of the deal. This is part of the Christian life. Suffering by the righteous at the hands of the wicked is the norm. And in fact, I will tell you, the fact that you live in America right now where by and large you are not yet being persecuted, we are the oddity. We're the historical anomaly. That has been the norm for Christians and soon will be here. So, in fact, Peter is already preparing believers in his day what to do when they're, when they're opposed and reviled. He says in 1 Peter 3.9 in the context just preceding ours, don't revile in return when you're reviled. But now in our text, look carefully at verse 14 and 17. Peter's going to expand and he's going to talk about a distinct type of suffering. Look at it in verse 14 and 17. Suffering for doing good. Peter writes in verse 14, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake. And again in verse 17, it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good. Now Peter reminds the unjustly suffering believer, look at verse 14, that they are blessed. Where would Peter get such an idea? Well, Peter heard Jesus repeatedly instruct on this topic in the Sermon on the Mountain, the most famous sermon in the history of the world. Jesus began that sermon. Peter was right there in the front row. Jesus began this sermon with the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes, of course, you'll remember, are a full orb description of the character of every converted person. They are the birthmarks of everyone who's born again. They are the fruit that every saved person will bear. And Jesus in that sermon lists, lists eight traits. Poverty of spirit, mourning over sin, meekness, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, mercy, purity of heart, peacemaking. And then Jesus gives the cherry on top of the fruit. He says the eighth and final beatitude or trait will come as a shock to your sensibility. It's the reverse of what we expect. We think that men and women who mourn for sins, live a life of meekness, long for God's righteousness, show mercy to others, are pure in heart and go about making peace, won't such people be universally beloved? Jesus says, no, absolutely not. Our flesh, of course, reasons this way. We want everyone to love us, and so we'll bend over backwards to find ways to get people to like us. Here's where the words of Jesus shock us. According to Jesus, persecution is just as much a mark of the Christian as is poverty of spirit or weeping over sin. Peter, as I said, was sitting in the front row that day, our author, when Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus said these troubling words. Blessed. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you for my sake falsely. So when Peter is quoted, when he's saying these words, look at verse 14. 
If you should suffer for righteousness sake, you're blessed. All he's doing is verbatim quoting Jesus' words from the Sermon on the Mount about the blessedness of suffering for Christ's sake. The type of suffering that Jesus pronounces in the Sermon on the Mount pronounces blessed is specific for his sake. Suffering for preaching Christ and proclaiming him, for living for him, for following him. This is the suffering that is the product of loyalty to Christ, and both Jesus and Peter pronounce blessed. Look at what Peter tells believers in verse 14. He knows what you're going to be thinking as you hear these words, and so he immediately commands believers to not succumb to fear of the threats of the persecutors. This is in keeping with our Lord's commands in Matthew 10 when he tells us not to fear men, but only to fear God. And look at verse 17, the the wraparound portion of Peter's text. Peter draws the distinction between those who suffer justly, evildoers, and those who suffer unjustly, believers who are not wrongdoers. But whether the suffering is just or unjust, Peter reminds his readers, look carefully at verse 17, that none of these trials are by chance, but they are according to the will of God. Because even suffering is decreed by a sovereign God. Peter's fellow apostle says it this way in Ephesians 1.11, that our God works all things according to the counsel of his will. How long has this been decreed? When did God ordain this, that you should suffer? Prophet Isaiah says it's 600 years before the incarnation, where the Lord says, I declare the end from the beginning. From ancient time, things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel will stand, I will do all my pleasure. And so when we think of the sufferings of the believers, they're decreed. They're the will of God. They're the ordained plan of a sovereign, eternal God. That's why we have these words in verse 17. They're according to the will of God. Now, this isn't odd because we, as, as sovereignty people, we believe that, as, P, as Paul says in Ephesians 1.11, we believe that God decrees all things, whether it be the actions and days of men and angels and plants and animals, the occurrences of planets and galaxies and solar system, even so-called chance events such as the lot that's cast into the lap, the small things like the fall of birds from trees or the heart of the king, which is in the hand of God who turns it wherever he wishes. Or even the bad stuff. We are told in Exodus 4.11 that physical handicaps, ordained by God. Disasters in Amos 3, willed by God. Family discord. Joseph says to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God ordained it for good. The worst event in history. The crucifixion of the one only innocent person who ever lived, Jesus. Willed by God, foreordained. So look at verse 17. When Peter speaks of the will of God, he's simply reminding his readers that a sovereign God wills, he decrees, he foreordains all things, even the persecution of believers by the unrighteous. Now, I love apologetics. I hope you'll look at verse 15 and 16. Apologetics known as the defense of the faith. And it is my privilege, in fact, right now, Just so you'll know the pecking order over in the office, here's the pecking order. Taylor and I carry the bags for almost Dr. Anderson 
and the beloved Dr. Dots. That's our job is to buy them lunch and to take their car to get washed because we're the lightweights and they're the intellectual heavyweights. And we know that. I've sat at the feet of the best practical apologist working today, Pastor Dodds. You need his book. In fact, it contains the labor of 35 years of study. His book on apologetics. Go and wave money at him and say, please, I need a copy of this book. Maybe he'll cut loose with one of his books. But in so many cases, modern evangelicals have reduced apologetics to just a game of intellectual chess that we play with our unregenerate neighbors. And you'll hear believers say things like, my propositions are better than yours, I'm logical, you're irrational, and it's a game to them. That is not how Peter teaches the task of apologetics. Look at the hermeneutics of placement. Now, you don't have to be too bright to figure this out. Look at the placement of verses 15 and 16. After asserting, verse 14, the reality of believers suffering for righteousness' sake, and then repeating, verse 17, the reality of believers suffering for doing good, right in the middle of that context. Look where it's placed. Verse 15 and 16, Peter speaks to the timing and method of apologetics. Now, you don't have to be too bright to figure this out. Verse 14 is about suffering Christians. Verse 17 is about suffering Christians. And so context, context, context. What is it that Peter's talking about? What to do in the midst of suffering, namely the defense of the faith. And so walk through verse 15 and 16 and notice what Peter tells first century believers, how to go about the task of apologetics when you're suffering. First of all, he tells them to sanctify the Lord God in their hearts in verse 15. In other words, not to bow down to idols or engage in emperor worship. Much of apologetics is simply confessing Jesus as Lord before lost men. And then go on. Peter spells out again. It's very basic. It's very practical what Peter tells them in verse 15 and 16. He tells them in verse 15 to always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. The word defense there in verse 15 is the word apologia, which means it comes from the practice in Athens where every citizen, if he was on trial, had to defend himself personally. There were no lawyers. Some of you might think that's a better society. But when Peter says this, no doubt he's remembering that painful Thursday night in Jerusalem when he was asked three times in the span of 90 minutes to give a defense. And he failed the test miserably. Now look at Peter's imperative in verse 15. He tells believers to always be ready. To do that, you must prepare. There are many of you right now say, I'm not ready. Couldn't give a defense, especially to men who are wanting to oppose or persecute me. And so this is why I'll say it a second time. After this service, go find the finest thinker on apologetics living, Dan Dodds. Find him and say, uh, Pastor Dodds, when are you going to teach your intro to apologetics class again? I need to be prepared. Carl just told me, huh, huh, and pester him until he gives you satisfaction. It will help if you buy his lunch. The believer must go through. Look at what the imperative is in verse 15. Always be ready. 
The believer must put themselves to the mental and spiritual work of preparation. We have a great example of this in Acts 25 and 26, where the Apostle Paul rots in a jail cell for a year and a half. What do you think he's doing? He's preparing. He's preparing to give a defense. And he's called out of his jail cell to stand in front of the Roman rulers, Festus and Agrippa. This is the Paul who's always ready. He writes to Timothy and says, be ready in season and out of season. Paul is always ready to speak about the gospel of Christ and the hope of eternal life. And then when he finally is pulled out of prison and stood before Festus and Agrippa, and they say, give us a reason for the hope. Paul answers with an outstanding model of what you're to do when you're given that platform. Paul details his past life. Then he speaks of his conversion, his repentance and faith. And then he speaks of his present life of submission to Christ. Here are these two Roman rulers who hold the power of death over him. Festus dismisses Paul as a lunatic. Agrippa confesses, Paul, you've almost convinced me. Go on in Peter's mandate of how to do apologetics. Look at verse 15. You're to do this, you're, be, you're ready to give a defense to all classes of people, to everyone whether it be a servant girl in a late-night courtyard where Peter fumbled, or civil magistrates in court, which Paul does before Agrippa and Festus. It's your task to be prepared to give a defense to everyone. And then notice what kind of defense. Look at verse 15. Reasons. You're to have reasons. Do you have any solid biblical grounds for your belief? And then Peter goes on and says... Hope. This is what must come forth in your apologetic presentation. The believer must be a communicator of Christian hope. Our culture, of course, right now is working against hope. Our culture is a culture of despair. It's been progressively so under the philosophical nihilism for the last 100 years of Camus and Sartre and postmodern writers. And one of the key planks in this worldview driven by evolutionary thought and relativism is hopelessness. What is the Christian hope? The hope that you must be able to communicate. It's not wishful thinking, but an assured future reality. It's not mystical. It's something the Christian can explain and articulate. Our hope is the assurance that Jesus on the last day will resurrect our dead, decayed bodies and transform them into the likeness of his resurrected body. Our hope is the certainty that we will hear the words, not guilty, from the judge. Our hope is the prospect of the erasure of all sin, pain, and tears. Our hope is not based on feelings, but our hope is based on the objective, inscripturated promises of a God who cannot lie. Our hope is based on the infinite merit of Jesus. We have a sure and certain expectation of future blessings because Jesus has earned them for us. These blessings will not be bestowed without good reason, but because Christ bought them for us. Why must the believer know their hope? It'll give them patience in tribulation. It'll give the believer stability. Go on in verse 15 of our text. Peter tells you how to go about the apologetic task. Again, one of the things that's so troubling, especially with young men, see some young men who maybe they've read one article by Greg Bonson or Cornelius Van Til, at least they're reading the right people, and they will engage with unbelievers, and they are smart alecks. They're cocky. 
They're unbearable. They've not read the mandate to how to do it. Look at verse 15. With meekness and fear. This speaks to your manner. How can those who follow a master who's gentle and lowly be arrogant? Peter's saying, yes, this is going to come in the midst of persecution and opposition. But you're commanded to follow hard after Christ in your manner of how you do apologetics. Then look at verse 16. This is, by the way, the longest section in the New Testament about apologetics. So drink it in, in verse 15 and 16. Peter says that you should have a good conscience. A man who's unprepared to defend the faith and is arrogant or fearful of men cannot have a clear conscience. Peter concludes that when they defame you as evildoers, Notice how this fits into the context. It's surrounding, Peter says in verse 14 and in verse 17, that this is what evildoers, wicked men are going to do to believers. Peter says, when they defame you, you're told it's coming. You'll be mocked. You'll be lowered. You're told when you to defend the faith, when you're being mocked and belittled and defamed. And finally, Peter says, here's the goal. Look at the end of verse 16. That those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. Much, look at those little words hanging there in verse 16. Your good conduct. Much of the weight of your argument will come from this. Good conduct. It's your piety and holiness which will give weight to your careful, wise arguments. And perhaps you're wondering, why am I not making any progress in my apologetic arguments? Maybe it's because there's no credible profession, no good conduct that accompanies them. Then look at how all of this hangs together in verse 18. If you recoil from unjust suffering, remember our salvation came from a man suffering for doing good. If you're thinking, what what good could there be in, in the righteous suffering? At the hands of the unrighteous. Peter says in verse 18, your salvation is all tied to this. Your salvation came by a man suffering for doing good. Was the act of bearing the sins of others that they might have eternal life a righteous act? Yes, it was the most glorious act in the history of the world. Did Jesus suffer for doing this righteous act? Yes, the worst suffering of any man ever. He suffered the full weight of the wrath of the Father compressed into a few hours. Jesus suffered the pangs of hell and damnation for a righteous act. So look at verse 18. Before you demean and say, what purpose could there be in me suffering at the hands of the wicked? You were saved by a suffering man. Isaiah 53, Jesus is called... The suffering servant, the passage that Pastor King read a moment ago, Isaiah 53, several hundred years before the cross, is prophesied, the sufferings of our Jesus. The suffering didn't happen by accident. It was planned. It was ordained. Think of the sufferings. For Look at verse 18. Let us never get too far from the reality of our salvation, that we were saved by suffering. Look at verse 18. Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Now think of what his suffering that's documented there in verse 18, his suffering consisted of. First of all, physical pain. Multiple beatings at the hands of 
professional torture experts, sadistic Roman soldiers, which resulted in a body torn to shreds and a heavily lacerated skull. Then there were the iron spikes driven through his wrists and ankles. Isaiah 53 uses words like pierced, crushed, scourged, that send the clear message this was an agonizingly violent death. But then he suffered the pain of being under a curse. Every Israelite knew, according to Deuteronomy 21, cursed is the one who hangs on the cross. And so not only does Jesus speak of or know physical pain, he knows the pain of being thought as being a cursed man. Then third, he knows the pain of human rejection. You remember Isaiah writes in Isaiah 53, he was despised, rejected by men. And finally, he knows the greatest of all suffering. Far more than physical pain, the pain of being under a curse, the pain of human rejection combined and squared the pain of divine rejection. For in his greatest agony, in his worst suffering, Jesus screams out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Citing Psalm 22. For in that moment, he was experiencing the dregs and the depths of the bottom of hell. This is what our Apostles' Creed speaks of when it says, He descended into hell. These sufferings purchased our salvation. We can never think little of the suffering of a righteous man at the hands of a wicked man because our salvation was purchased by a suffering innocent man. His sufferings were substitutionary and redemptive. What did Jesus precisely, technically accomplish? He took our sin, suffering your deserved punishment and mine, and then in return gave us his righteousness, thus justifying us. According to Romans 5.1, justification means we have peace with God. This peace was purchased at this cost, the sufferings of an innocent man. How do we apply this word to us? Let me make two brief applications. First, let me remind you, for those of you who don't read the newspapers or, or know what's happening in the 199 nations around the world besides ours, when we speak of the persecution of the innocent and the righteous by the wicked, we are not talking just about a first century phenomena. We're talking about a 21st century phenomena. Today, in India, Hindus are burning churches and hundreds of homes of believers today in India. Today, on the continent of Africa, in Nigeria and Somalia, Sudan and Mozambique, and 13 other African nations, Muslims are harassing and killing Christians while the state turns a blind eye. These persecutors also control access to jobs, education, and health services, ensuring Christians cannot get to any of these. Today, this day in China, Christians are in jail for simply refusing to confess that the Communist Party and the state deserve their supreme loyalty. Wang Yi, a reformed pastor, published 95 theses, the first 15 of which assert the sovereignty of God and the lordship of Christ. And for doing so, he's now serving a lengthy prison sentence and his wife has had all their possessions confiscated. 
And so don't think of this idea of opposition and persecution by the wicked as something that happened 20 centuries ago. It's happening today. And it's coming to our shores. The author of Hebrew commands us in Hebrews 13, remember the prisoners as if chained with them. Remember those who are mistreated since you yourselves are in the body also. Always be aware that this is the fate of what's happening to believers today. When you read these words written by Peter, pull them into the 21st century. Your brothers and sisters in Christ are suffering these things today. The second application. If an apostle tells you to expect injustice and opposition for living holy, and that's what Peter does here, he tells you to expect injustice and opposition persecution for living holy. Don't expect to get justice or proper treatment in this life. Parents, if you have a a five-year-old fairness junkie in your house, you know these children, right? Who always demand and expect equitable treatment, and their punchline is always, that's not fair, and you don't teach them the message of Peter's teaching, they will grow up to be adults who... When anything doesn't go their way, they will complain bitterly, loudly, longly that I don't deserve this. So start teaching them now, right now. Jesus didn't deserve the ill treatment he got, and we will be conformed to his image. Let's pray together. Our Father, we praise you for this word. We confess our weakness, our fleshly unwillingness to suffer any hardship for Christ's sake. So take this word and show us our calling, that if our Savior suffered, we must be prepared for rejection, injustice, opposition. Give us courage. Give us bravery to confess Jesus Christ, even defending...